we've seen this a bunch of times where we've had folks that have come to us and said, yeah, bug bounties seem cool. Like, let's, you know, let's start that bug crowd. Can you help us out? And part of the conversation that we'll have with them is like, do you intend to follow through? Like, are you going to treat the hacker community with respect? Hello, and welcome to the Hacker Next Door podcast, where we explore the origin stories, exploits, and everyday lives of real world hackers. I'm your host, Jeremy N. Smith, and this series is my chance to challenge stereotypes and examine the human side of this extraordinary activity and profession, who hackers really are, and how hacking really works. My guest today is Casey Ellis, chairman, founder, and chief technology officer of Bug Crowd, the world's top crowdsourced cybersecurity company, which means he employs hundreds of thousands of hackers. Customers in over 65 industries and 36 countries hire Bug Crowd to manage what's called bug bounty programs, paying good hackers to find their vulnerabilities before the bad guys do. It's a remarkable business model, which gives Casey unique insights into the hacker economy. As you hear by his accent, Casey grew up outside Sydney, Australia, before making his way to Silicon Valley. I'm grateful for his global perspective and wicked smart take on cyber criminals and cyber guardians alike. Thanks for joining me, Casey. You're welcome. Great to be here. You've been in cybersecurity for 20 years. Back then, people hacked for fun or for fame, but almost never with any personal profit mode, almost never for money. When did a hacker economy really form? Yeah, that's a that's a great question because you're absolutely right. I think the um, the spirit of the hacker, like the whole idea of pulling something apart and understanding it to the point that you can put it back together in a way that does things that it wasn't originally intended to do, that's been around for, for far longer than 20 years. But around the time that I got into the security industry was as this whole awareness of the need to get this kind of adversarial break of feedback that was just starting to, to, to pop out like in the, uh, in the early 2000s. The, the whole idea of the pen test industry was just starting to come onto the scene. I think at that point, it still freaked a lot of people out, but they were broadly becoming aware of the fact that, you know, if you build software, humans are responsible for building software and humans make mistakes. And sometimes those can create vulnerabilities. So how do you find out when that's true and, and try to fix those things and learn from them for the future? Pen test in this, we mean penetration tester? Yeah. So pen, penetration testing, it's the idea of you know hiring someone as a consultant to come in, be paid by the hour to simulate what an attacker would do if they were to come after your systems and try to break into them. So you know being able to go out there and, and do that as someone who's employed for, for good and for the purpose of defense and fixing those issues, as opposed to the actual adversary, that's penetration testing. There was also this middle ground, and there still is a middle ground, of people who are not hired to find holes, but find them anyway. Yeah. I, I remember talking to a couple of people who are now very prominent cybersecurity executives, and they were talking about, hey, in our younger days, we had literal back alley meetups where we'd connect once a month with a U.S. government agent who would give us you know, a paper bag with like $10,000 in cash for our latest vulnerability discovery. Did you ever do or participate in anything like that or was australia a little too far away from the action i don't really want to go into that too much what i will say is that the idea of buying vulnerabilities and buying information around vulnerabilities for the purpose of exploiting them like regardless of who you are you could be a nation state you know someone who's doing it for for purposes of protecting 
the folks that you serve. You could be a cyber criminal. It's all sorts of different people that could be in that position. That's been around, I think, for a lot longer than this idea of buying a bug for the purpose of killing it off. It's been interesting to learn from that. I think the kinds of folks that have been very active in that offensive community have in some ways actually helped to inform how we've built out the defensive one. Hmm. So this evolves into bug bounty programs eventually. And I, I think of one of the pioneers being Microsoft, ironically, because they had been so derided for so long for their security flaws. But it's quickly picked up at other tech giants like Google, Facebook, PayPal, and now even places like the U.S. Department of Defense. Just to begin, what is a bug bounty program? A bug bounty essentially is the idea of putting a reward out to either the entire community on the internet or a smaller group of people to say that if you're the first to find and report a particular issue within the software that you're looking at, you'll receive a bounty or a cash reward for that. And the more severe or the more impactful that issue is, the larger that reward is going to be. So that's like the general concept of it. And going back to what we were talking about just now with the the offensive market, like it's similar in its model, but what you do with the bug after you've received it is very different. Instead of going out and taking it and creating a product that you use to attack folk, you're actually taking that information and using it to basically close that weakness and to make your users safer going forward. This involves, in, on your end, recruiting a global team of trusted hackers. And I think for a lot of people that raises the obvious question, how do customers know the hackers you send their way will report and fix the problems they discover instead of taking advantage of them and ruining everything. Definitely. Yeah. And that's, that's a question that we get early and often, I would say, because I think the idea of a hacker being someone who's potentially useful and friendly is still fairly new. The automatic assumption is the mysterious person in the hoodie with the green screen and, and the right. malicious intent. So the, the idea of these people being locksmiths alongside potentially also being burglars, that's kind of a novel thing. There's a couple of things that we do around that. You know, the first is to really understand who they are. We do a lot of work based on their behavior on the platform to get an assessment of like how trustworthy do we expect them to be in the future? Is this someone who's professional? Is this someone who knows the norms of contracts, of expectations, all of these different things and observe that from a behavioral standpoint over time? The next step up from that is to go through identity verification, where we know proof positive who they are. Then there's things like background checking and, and even further up than, than that third party verifications for customers that we work with in the defense space, for example, that have that as a requirement for these people coming in and doing work for them. I think the best way to think of it is a spectrum of trust that we apply across the the you know now hundreds of thousands of people that we have on the platform. I wouldn't say of each of them that we'd walk them all into a high security environment or arrangement straight away, but there's some for whom we would do that. And our job is to know who's who. Hmm. You know, it's funny. On the other end, I've heard hackers complain about being disrespected or ignored or even threatened with a lawsuit when they try to report bugs. So what guarantees companies will pay up or fix their security holes when a problem is found? Yeah, absolutely. I think the fact that they engage us in the first place to run this is really a leading indicator that they intend to do that. And, and part of what we do is actually vet that with customers that we bring on. We've seen this a bunch of times where we've had folks that have come to us and said, yeah, bug bounties seem cool. Like, let's, you know, let's start that bug crowd. Can you help us out? And part of the conversation that we'll have with them is like, do you intend to follow through? Like, are you going to treat 
the hacker community would respect because ultimately what you're asking the internet to do is come in and give you feedback with the promise for a reward but no commitment up front and we need to know as bug crowd that you intend to follow through on that i think a lot of people when they hear the idea of a bug bounty program it can sound like extortion or a quote unquote mafia protection fee what are a few examples of bug bounties really improving the security of the businesses and government agencies we all rely on? Yeah, for sure. You mentioned extortion, and there's been cases where bug bounties have been pretty prominently confused with extortion over the past couple of years. I think the very clear difference between those two things, it's twofold. One is that in the case of a a bounty program, the offer to pay is extended proactively by the recipient as opposed to the attacker or the potential adversary coming in, finding information, and then trying to get money for that. So that's a pretty clear difference between the two that's actually pretty easy to sniff out. So what are a few examples of bug bounties really improving the security of a business or a government agency? As a specific example, one of the uh, breaches that's been fairly well known over the past year or two is the Equifax issue. That, that came out. That was basically a breach that was enabled by a, a vulnerability in a piece of software called Struts, which was in their web server. A malicious hacker found that, was able to exploit that, and then went on to do the things that are widely known that they did from, from that point forward. Their path to discovery of that issue, but also the path to exploitation, that happened four months after we'd identified and had fixed the same exact vulnerability in a similar type of customer as a result of bug bounty hunters and people that were thinking bad but doing good, going out and finding a similar thing. That's a really practical example and one that I think is is pretty easy to connect to because that, that particular breach had a pretty widespread impact. That's a great example. And it's it, it really brings up how the sort of ironies of security, success is things not happening. Yeah, that's another preaching point that I can get on. Like the whole idea of security being defined by a lack of feedback. It's inherently challenging. As we talked about earlier on, I've, I've been doing this type of work since pretty much I got out of high school. And it's always been true. The reality is if you do it well, nothing happens. And, and it's very rare to get a pat on the back for nothing happening. Let's put a face on these hackers if we can. How many hackers work for BugCrowd? At the moment, we've got about 150,000 people signed up on the platform. Wow. Yeah, it's a and lot. Where are these hackers located? What's their typical background and how do they find you or vice versa? Yeah, so they're located all around the world. We have a a very strong representation in the US. We have a a strong representation out of Australia, which is probably owing to my (laughs) funny accent and and so on. Um, Yeah, out of India, definitely the Philippines, South America, the UK, and then kind of other as you go down the list from there. The way that we've seen the crowd grow historically is through interest-based social networks that are pre-existing. So, so what will happen is someone will get involved in a program, they'll be successful, they'll, they'll get paid and have a good experience, but then they'll tell their friends and then their friends jump in and start contributing as a, as a product of that initial interaction. That's the way that we tend to grow naturally. We obviously push and prod it every now and then. If we see a particular technology that's coming over the hill is needing more attention. We did that with IoT, for example, after IoT kind of took off. Internet of things, you mean? Yeah, yeah. Internet of things. So the whole idea of the things that you have in your home that now have the internet on them and are practically a tiny little computer. We saw that starting to take hold as a thing that people were engaging with around 2015. And we realized, okay, there's not a lot of people around that know how to 
hack that stuff and provide security feedback on how design of those systems might not have been done well or, or could be improved. So we went out and actually proactively recruited in that particular area at that point in time. We did a similar thing in the automotive space around the same time as well. Like the whole idea of the internet now being a feature that you have on your car, that's a safety issue. If you can get into your car through that internet connection, that's like a a larger problem. So, okay, where are we going to find people that understand how those systems work, but are thinking about them in terms of how they could break them to make them do what they're not meant to do? Those are some of the proactive recruitment efforts that we take around technologies. But to answer your question, it tends to grow organically. This is a very social group of people and they tend to like to trade ideas and and thoughts and, and learnings. And really what we've tried to do is to tap into that. Do you know their age or education background or what the gender breakdown is or anything like that? Yeah, for sure. From an age standpoint, they do tend to be younger by just volume. It's interesting because a lot of the success stories that I'd call out are actually more a function of the outliers than they are of, of the broader population. But the broader chunk of folk are 19 to 25. They're mostly male. There is a lack of diversity, I think, from a gender standpoint. And, and that's something that Bugcrite actively works on trying to help correct. But that's historical and you know that's what we've got to work with. So we're working forward from there. In terms of their university background, at this point, it's around 60 to 70% of the people that we work with have some form of higher education past high school. Um, wow. But I wouldn't necessarily say that's a determinant of their success. You know, right, they're, right. They're, there's folk that come in as people that have dropped out of high school and become an engineer. And then they're also a gamer and they like to tweak with stuff. And all of a sudden in their forties, they realize that hacking is kind of fun and get into cybersecurity through bug bounty. Like that's a story that we encounter quite regularly. So it's a pretty big mix. Cool. So let's say I am a hacker or think I might be a hacker (laughs) and I want to join the bug crowd. Uh What is the starting point? What, what does it sort of look like? What are the early experiences? Is it like a game where I get tested or am I thrown into a real situations that I'm trying to find solutions for immediately. Really what it comes down to, and and this kind of goes back to how do we trust people and and, and and figure that out. In terms of what we do for customers, there's a spectrum there as well. So there's customers that we work for where they don't have a requirement for trust in any form whatsoever. They're just going out to the open internet and saying, hey, everyone, come and test our security and tell us what you find and we'll pay you if it's valuable. And then there's a a version of that that we refer to as a vulnerability disclosure program where it's like literally more like a neighborhood watch. We're not offering an incentive here, but if you find something, here's how to tell us and we appreciate that. That kind of model where there's no barrier to entry when it comes to trust is really where we see most folk get started. So they'll, they'll get involved in a program like Tesla or MasterCard or Pinterest is a pretty broad variety. They'll find a company that takes their interest, that they think they understand, that their technology matches up with their skill set, and they'll start hacking away on it. And then as they develop proof, they graduate through the platform at that point in time. So that's kind of the, the pathway to success through BugCrowd. Alongside that, we have what we call BugCrowd University, which is essentially a series and a set of training tools and modules that we use to to educate people wherever they're up to. People that are just total newcomers to the space or people that are incredibly experienced in a particular domain, like what we want to be able to do is to address your expertise wherever it happens to be and, and help you get to the next level. So do people get special access to these companies they're testing because that would seem vulnerable or is it just if you find something that you or anyone in the public can find, 
then let us know. And that's kind of your entryway. For the public programs, they don't, they're not given special access to test. Obviously, they get special access if they find a bug because that's how bugs work. Right, right. Um, if, if you can find special access, then you can get special yeah, access. If you can get, yes. Yeah, exactly. I think what you're asking about is more a function of the private programs that we run where we actually select the people that have the appropriate level of trustworthiness based on all of the stuff that we talked about before but also the correct skills, the correct kind of behaviors in terms of how they approach testing to best fit what the client needs. It's those sorts of programs where we'll be in, in a position where there's like credentials given or they'll be dropped off behind a firewall and given special access to targets and, and, and different things like that. And those are the kinds of things that we tend to do for the more, call it conservative verticals. So, you know, Department of Defense is one, like that's on record as an as organization that we're working with for the express purpose of doing private testing on targets for which skills are rare. And, and that's really our job is to connect the right person with the right target to be able to give this feedback and allow that to happen. And access to those targets is a function of that to your question. How much money can someone hacking for bug crowd make? It's very interesting in terms of the spread of that. We've got people on the platform that have made over a million dollars in their time okay. working with us. And, and some of those are quite young too. So it's, it's pretty interesting to talk to them and, and understand their experience of it and figure out how to replicate that and make that better. As you go down from the peak of, of the community there, it's really a pretty broad spread. Like the, the top 50 hackers over the year earned about $145,000, which is not a million dollars, but still a pretty respectable Yeah, you know, especially if you're in India or home. the Philippines. Exactly or, right. Or yeah. frankly, the US or the UK. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. And then again, downstream from that, you've got bugs that are paid out at, you know, a hundred to 500 to $1,000 that people tend to engage with more as a, a hobby or something that they do in their spare time. It's almost like the hacking equivalent of picking up an Uber shift. It really is. It, it's, it's actually more reflective of the gig economy, I think, than it is of anything else at this point. Like people are engaging it according to what they choose to build as a, as a lifestyle. Style and, and as a, a work kind of method around this model. What are the motivations you see people have other than making money for participating if those motivations exist? The top one definitely is, is curiosity and intellectual assent. So, so, you know, hackers are just, they're, they're compelled to solve puzzles. You know, you see a locked door and you immediately want to know what's behind it and set yourself on the task of, of finding out how to get to that answer. There's a almost compulsive puzzle solving element to it. But then there's a whole bunch of learning that comes alongside that, that, that adds to their knowledge and what they can do going forward as a career and, and all sorts of other things as well. I think that's the, the biggest driver that we see. But a close second to that would be the altruistic component, like the idea of making the internet a safer place, like actually feeling compelled to give this feedback and, and to be able to respond to organizations and say, hey, listen, like here's something that you're doing that's making your users unsafe. You're not aware of it. I am. Like, you should know. Like, how can we have a productive dialogue on how to reduce this risk for everyone who's involved? You may have just answered this next question with that answer, but I was going to ask in closing a couple things. One, what surprised you the most about this business or the individual hackers you employ? And second, what's one of your proudest moments of the team providing a real service to society? I think the biggest surprise that I've had is the rate with which the, uh, the broader market has actually accepted hackers as part of the solution. My expectation going into starting Bug Brown and having come from this community myself is that it would take a lot longer to turn that boat around. 
if you'd have told me 10 years ago that three years into doing this, we'd be running programs with the Department of Defense, which is like arguably the apex predator and, and like the largest defensive organization in, in the world, I'd have probably questioned whether or not that was realistic. Uh, but here we are, the, the overall kind of adoption and, and acceptance of the fact that, yeah, hackers are a part of the solution. That's been a surprise, a very pleasant one. But I will be honest and say that happened actually a lot quicker than I thought it would. Hmm. So industry knows that hackers can be for good, even if the general public hasn't yeah, caught, I th- caught yeah. on as, in the same way. Yeah, exactly. And I think with the benefit of hindsight, what the industry needed was a catalyst. Like they just needed tools in order to be able to connect with this community and get that feedback. And that's the part that was missing. Um, so your second question around you know, rewarding moments, like I, I just, I love it. I, I think one of the things that we see happen on the social level is this whole idea of, of kids. Like, you know, I've got two kids, like they've been, unlocking iPhones since before they could talk. And that's becoming a normal thing, right? And you know, really where we're getting to now is, is this idea of, of teenagers that have this incredible skill when it comes to their command of technology, but they haven't necessarily matured to the point where their moral compass is fully formed yet. So they're not necessarily making an active decision to become a bad guy, quote unquote, but they kind of wander off into shady territory. And what we get the opportunity to do because of how we go out and how we attract people and how we operate is to basically divert them back into a productive career path that keeps them out of jail, which I think is, is pretty cool. And a good example of that, we, we had a friend who their, their child went to a, a middle school that had an online ordering system because we're in the Bay Area. And of course, they had an online ordering system at the cafeteria at school. Um, and and, and this, uh, this kid had figured out how to hack that. Um, to, get, to get his friends, you know, free food at, at lunchtime. Yes, the French fry connection. Exactly. And, and they got in court and the, it was this, you know, tense, like, okay, this kid's going to get expelled or suspended, like there's going to be impact and consequence. And at some point, you know, the, the, the person that I knew said, well, you should talk to the bug crowd crew and connect this person to how to turn this into a productive career. Because like that's, objectively badass like what they, what they were doing was a really right cool, right like, and from if we a technical can have, standpoint. you know people again if people have you know yeah. one thing that's beautiful about a hacker economy is if there are positive outlets then if you're in estonia or you're in india or you're in nigeria and you have positive outlets for your skills without the legal risks why not take those exactly yeah, and, and that was literally the conversation that we had. It's like, okay, this, I think it was a 13-year-old boy, clearly has some incredible skills, clearly has the hacker instinct. They can think like a criminal, but you know, at 13 years old, they probably haven't chosen to be one yet. Um, right. Like, let's have a conversation with them and see if we can set them on a path to, to turn this into a productive career instead of one that left unchecked could very easily turn into a life of crime, Right. Like you end up in a position where, okay, I hacked the cafeteria when I was 13, I got expelled. Then I met some bad people from some part of the world. And then, you know, one thing led to another, like that's, that's a common story. And so the opportunity to intercept that and actually see that in, in real time and to actually be a part of those conversations was pretty cool. So is the kid signed up? Is he doing it? Yeah. Yeah. He's into it. It's, it's good. He's part of the crowd. It's a good thing. Where can people find you or bug crowd online if they're interested? Bugcrowd is at uh, bugcrowd.com and that's B-U-G-C-R-O-W-D.com and Bugcrowd on Twitter. My name's Casey Ellis. I'm on the handle Casey John Ellis on Twitter. And uh, yeah, you can find us all in those different ways. Awesome.
that was great. Thank you so much. Yeah, we covered a lot of ground there. That was that was a fun chat. Thanks again, Casey Ellis. Thank you to Furniture for our theme music. And thank you for listening. Please rate, review, and share this podcast with friends. And please join me again when I speak with anthropologist Gabriella Coleman about embedding for six years with a global hacktivist group, celebrating the virtues of anonymity, and trying to avoid being tracked in the digital age. That's next time on The Hacker Next Door.